Hello and welcome to the April 19 to May 2 version of Indiana Supreme and Appellate Court Criminal Case Summaries. We've got five cases to go over this week. It's actually a double because I missed last week due to some work that I had. Um, We've got one case from the Indiana Supreme Court. It's Ellis. It was published on April 23rd. Goff wrote the opinion. Then we have four from the Indiana Court of Appeals. Wampler from Davies Superior Court came out April 28th. Roaring from Ripley Circuit came out April 30th. Smith from Huntington Circuit Court came out April 30th. And also on April 30th was Owens out of Jennings Circuit Court. There's a brief update on Ruan versus United States from the Supreme Court of the United States at the end of this episode. So getting straight to the opinions, Ellis out of Marion Superior Court 20, published on April the 30th. It is an Indiana Supreme Court case under cause number 21S-CR-159. Goff wrote the opinion. It was unanimous with Rush, David, Massa, and Slaughter all concurring. This is a case about the Fourth Amendment waiver that is uh, entered when people are put in community corrections programs, and this one specifically with the Marion County Community Corrections Program. Marion Superior 20 had granted a motion to suppress because there was not reasonable suspicion to conduct a home visit. And the judge in Marion 20 said that at least reasonable suspicion is required. The state appealed saying that the language in the waiver for Marion County Community Corrections uh, was complete enough that it waived reasonable suspicion and probable cause. And it was a complete waiver of all Fourth Amendment and Article 1, Section 11 Amendment rights. The, the Supreme, the Court of Appeals actually reversed the trial court and said that there was a waiver of um, suspicionless searches. So in other words, what's going on here is uh, case law had previously said that even if you waive your Fourth Amendment and Article 1, Section 11 protections, you still have a protection against unreasonable searches and seizures. And unreasonable means with no suspicion at all or random and that's what the law was when Marion 20 granted the motion to suppress. The Court of Appeals reversed that. The Supreme Court accepted transfer to affirm the Court of Appeals, which indicates um, they want this law published as a Supreme Court opinion, so none of the appellate courts will grant or will allow or forbid these kinds of searches, suspicionless searches, in other words. It's also interesting on the facts of this case because the reason the home visit was done is because the supervisor community corrections, the case manager called the supervisor and said, hey, I'm suspicious of uh, Mr. Ellis because he is requesting permission to go to fancy restaurants and he's unemployed and works part time. So I I don't think he has enough money to afford it. And so the Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court could have said, well, this doesn't even get to that issue because there was a reasonable suspicion to justify the home visit anyway. So they clearly wanted to send a message. Uh, The language in this waiver is particularly important, and I'm going to quote it. The language in the contract with Marion County Community Corrections says, quote, you waive your right against search and seizure, end quote. It doesn't mention Fourth Amendment. It doesn't mention Article I, Section 11. So what the Indiana Supreme Court said was, 
when you use that broad language with no restriction, um, that means you waive everything associated with search and seizure rights. Um, and it's only when the waiver contains some limiting language, like you waive your unreasonable search and seizure rights or you waive your reasonable suspicion, that's the only time a court needs to address or analyze how much was waived or not waived. And here, since it was just a very broad, lang very broad language with no restriction, the Supreme Court said that means you have no Fourth Amendment or Article One, Section 11 protections when you are in community corrections, and more specifically, on home detention. So that was Ellis. Keep that in mind as you're negotiating to get your kids on community corrections, home detention, and don't sign that waiver because it really is a waste of time to do random searches as opposed to searches where there's a basis. Uh, and that's just my personal opinion. So next opinion comes from uh, Davies Superior. It's Wampler. Came out April 28th, cause number 20A-PC-02043. Pyle wrote the opinion. Najem and Tavitas concurred. The issue here was did the court have authority to resentence Mr. Wampler after the Supreme Court had remanded with instructions to impose a specific sentence. So what happened here was Wampler was convicted at a bench trial of two B felony burglaries plus the habitual offender enhancement. The court sentenced him to 18 years on the burglaries, 15 on the habitual offender, total of 33 years. When it went up to the Supreme Court, they reviewed the sentence and remanded it finding that there was an unreasonable sentence, that 33 years was unreasonable, and specifically ordered the trial court to impose a sentence of six years on the burglaries and 10 years on the habitual enhancement. After that happened, Wampler had challenged one of the two habitual offender qualifiers, one of the two prior unrelated felonies, and that prior unrelated felony was vacated by the Court of Appeals. This is kind of an aside, but it plays into the court's ultimate ruling here. When that predicate was set aside, the habitual offender enhancement was vacated and the Department of Corrections calculated that Wampler had already served three years more than was required for his base uh, 15 years and they released him immediately. So he was out. He finished his sentence before the trial court had imposed the 6 plus 10 that was ordered by the Supreme Court. Well, after all that happened, the state filed a motion to bring Wampler back into court to resentence him in the burglary and habitual offender cases. And the court granted that order and this appeal ensued. The Court of Appeals jumped over Wampler's issue, which was that the court, trial court didn't have authority to do anything other than what the Court of Appeals had, or the Supreme Court had ordered them to do, the six plus 10. The Court of Appeals said, we don't even get there because he's already been released. And once somebody's completed their sentence and been released by the Department of Corrections, no court can resentence them. Makes sense, right? Um, Next case, Broering out of Ripley Circuit Court, April 30th is the date it was published. The cause number is 20A-CR-02232. 
Brown wrote the opinion. Vedic concurred and Bradford concurred with a separate opinion. The issue here is an appeal of the denial of bond based on the trial court's failure to conduct an initial hearing within 48 hours. What happened, and the dates are kind of important, February 27th of 2020, Broering was arrested. The next day, the court, trial court found probable cause, ordered um, him to remain in custody. And on that same day, February 28th, the state requested a 72-hour continuance, pretty common, 72-hour continuance uh, to determine the appropriate charges. The court granted that without conducting an initial hearing and then waited until March 4th when the court, when the prosecutor filed charges. At that point, the trial court conducted an initial hearing and set bond at $100,000. On October 19th, Broering filed a motion to reduce his bond or release him on his own recognizance, alleging that his rights had been violated when the court did not grant him a bail for a total of seven days back in February and March. This case has a really good summary of the statutes that govern initial hearings um, and a good comparison analysis to those statutes versus the right to bail that are uh, that's found in the Constitution. It also addresses the sort of undefined issue of what prompt means in the context of an initial hearing, an appearance before a judge on a warrantless arrest. That that uh, time period has never been strictly defined. Sort of been assumed to be about forty-eight hours because of the statutes that are involved, but the court goes through a really nice explanation of why prompt needs to remain a little bit nebulous. But in the end, they found that the trial court erred when it granted the 72 hours without an initial hearing and said what the trial court should have done under the statute is conduct the initial hearing, made the prosecutor request a 72-hour continuance at the initial hearing, and then granted it there. Um, that might sound a little counterintuitive, but my thought is if the court could have waited 48 hours for the initial hearing, then it's entirely possible the prosecutor who would be motivated um, by the ruling against him and delaying or giving him the 72 hours would actually be ready at that 48-hour mark with the charges and they wouldn't have needed 72 hours on top of that. I think that might be reading between the lines where the court was going with this. Um, and then the court said, even though there was error, the remedy for something like this is either the exclusion of evidence that the state obtained in the delay, or if there's some other prejudice, some specific remedy to address that prejudice, like if witnesses moved out of state and are no longer available, you might um, get remedy for that. But here, there was no prejudice shown at all uh, by the delay, so the Court of Appeals affirmed Ripley Circuit Court, uh, finding no remedy available for the error that was made. Next case is Smith. I'm going to give you the first name because there are a lot of Smiths out there. Jeffrey, it's out of Huntington Circuit Court, um, <clears throat> published on April 30th under cause 20ACR02066. Kirsch wrote the opinion. Altice 
and Weissman concurred. The issue here is the sufficiency of the evidence on a level six domestic battery with moderate bodily injury. Here, jury convicted uh, Smith of F6, and then Smith admitted to the habitual offender enhancement. He was actually acquitted on two more serious battery charges, F5s, convicted on two, but the two merged. He was sentenced to two and a half years on the level six felony, plus five additional years on the habitual enhancement he admitted to, total of seven and a half years. The evidence here, this is a fact-sensitive case, was there were two fights between Smith and, and his victim in the first one. Uh, he choked her to unconsciousness. She woke up in pain, pain on her side, and disoriented. Uh, the second, uh, Smith dented a door frame with his victim's head and repeatedly kicked her in the ribs. Her testimony that her pain level was eight or nine out of 10. Two additional witnesses saw the beating. She also testified that she saw stars regularly, uh, had headaches that would make her puke, um, and had bruises and scrapes all over her body from the two fights. Um, Smith was arguing that eight out of 10 is a subjective analysis and it only supports bodily injury, but not moderate bodily injury, which requires, quote, substantial pain in the definition of moderate bodily injury. The difference here between the F6 and a misdemeanor is, obviously, a misdemeanor maximum penalty is a year, and there's since it's no felony, there'd be no HO, so he would potentially go from seven and a half years down to one year. Um, so it's an important issue, but... The court here admitted there's no bright line between pain and extreme pain from the bodily injury versus serious bodily injury cases and then analogized between uh, bodily injury and moderate bodily injury. Although this is a case of first impression on the distinction between bodily injury and moderate as opposed to moderate and, uh, I'm sorry, bodily injury and serious bodily injury. Here, the court said, of course, aid is subjective, but it's well established that a batterer takes their victim as they find them. So the relative uh, feeling of pain is not an issue that you can defend on. And there was also a lot of other evidence of not just pain, but other injury that was more than enough to show moderate bodily injury. So the court denied the appeal, finding that the evidence was sufficient. <clears throat> Next case is Owens out of Jennings Circuit Court, published April 30th, cause number 20A-CR-01685. Pyle wrote the opinion, Najem and Tavetis concurred. This is an interlocutory appeal, and it is asking whether the trial court erred by denying CRIM 4A motion, criminal 4A motion for release. I'm just going to go through the dates because all you guys know, that's how these criminal 4A um, opinions Break out on March 5th of 2019. Charges were filed. Uh, Owens signed a promise to appear for an initial hearing on March 21st. He failed to appear for his initial hearing on March 21st. Warrant was issued. He was arrested on the warrant on April 12th and had an initial hearing on April 18th. At that initial hearing, a jury date was set for July 22nd of 2019. On June 25th, uh, a defense continuance, continuance was granted. 
court said that it would reset for an appropriate hearing where the parties agree on what hearing is needed and file a request with the court. So there was no new trial date set. Defendant remained um, in custody on October 1st. So from June 25th to October 1st, nothing really happened. Prosecutor emailed defense counsel, asked for status. By January 14th of 2020, the state had not received a response to that email, and so they filed a request for a trial date. Now we go from January 14th to February 19th, the state or the judge granted the state's motion to set a trial date, and in the order said he would separately set the trial date. So eight days after that, the court set a trial date for May. 18th of 2020. On April 7th of 2020, Owens filed his criminal four motion. There's a hearing on June 3rd, um, 2020. So apparently the May 18 trial did not go. Um, State introduced the email and also the order on COVID delays, the emergency order on COVID delays in support of their position that the time hadn't elapsed, the six months hadn't elapsed. On June 5th, this, the court denied the criminal four motion. Here, everybody agreed that the 74 days from the date of arrest uh, to the first trial date counted against the six months. Owen said that once the state requested a new trial date on January 14th, the clock on his motion to continue stopped and the, and the time went back to the state. The state said that all the time should apply to Owens from when he filed his motion um, to continue all the way to whenever the new trial date was. So the Court of Appeals citing Stevenson at 742 Northeast 2nd 463, that's an Indiana Supreme Court case from 2001, agreed with the state and said basically, if you file a motion to continue, everything, no matter what the state's doing, whether they try to get a new trial date or not, if, if you as a defense attorney file a motion to continue, until you get a new trial date set, all of that time goes to the defense and it's not counted against the state. So keep that in mind when you're asking for continuances. And when you do that, I would suggest that in your motions to continue, you just have a standard line requesting that a new trial date be set in X number of days. So you limit the amount of time you're waiving on criminal rule four automatically in your motions to continue. Otherwise, even if the state comes in and asks for trial date, if the court doesn't set one, the, the clock isn't stopped. So keep that in mind, defense attorneys. Last thing is a quick uh, update on SCOTUS. It's Ruan, R-U-A-N versus United States. The docket number at the Supreme Court is 20-1410. And the issue is whether a doctor can assert a good faith defense to a, a violation of the Controlled Substances Act. And that, the, the normal issue there, you're charged with prescribing, or a doctor's charged with prescribing medications uh, for no legitimate medical purpose or outside the usual course of professional medical practice. The good faith defense says that you, in good faith, thought that you were appropriately treating your particular patient. So it 
sort of allows a doctor to come in and say, well, that might be the normal medical practice, but here are the special considerations for this patient, and that's why I was outside the norm. That's nor it's something that a doctor can bring up in a civil proceeding for negligence. Um, the 11th Circuit, where this, course, this case came from, does not allow that defense, uh, but six other circuits do allow that defense. The Supremes have taken it, and next, uh, next fall we'll find out if everybody should allow that defense. So that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Pass this along to your friends. Tell your family about it if they want to go to law school. Tell them to listen. Maybe it'll help them get in. Um, do pass it to some friends, lawyers, judges, whoever you think might enjoy it. I do send it to prosecutors. They seem to think it's okay. And enjoy yourselves. Thanks again for listening. I will be back next week with the next episode of Indiana Supreme and Appellate Criminal Case Summaries.